Welcome to the Informed Life. In each episode of this show, we find out how people organize information to get things done. I am your host, Jorge Arango. My guest today is Sonny Brown. Sonny is a social entrepreneur who uses visual literacy, design thinking, and visual facilitation to solve complex problems. She's the author of The Doodle Revolution and co-author of Game Storming, which is a book beloved by many, including me. In this conversation, we discuss Sunny's current area of focus, which uses Zen Buddhism and design thinking to help individuals craft a more fulfilling and engaged life. I hope you find our conversation valuable. And now, Sunny Brown. Sunny, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure having you here. For folks who might not know you, would you mind please introducing yourself? Oh, when you let me know that we were going to have to do that, I had this like moment of, oh God, how do you introduce oneself when you're like a, um, there, well, the new term is multi-potentialite. Have you heard this obnoxious term? No. Uh, well, it's like if you're a polymath or if you're like, you know, you just have multifaceted aspects of yourself so it's not easy to summarize you know quote who I am and what I do so I always dread the question <laughs> but there is a term floating around called multi-potentialite and it just means a person that has you know many skills and many things that they pursue and many things that they're interested in there's a lot of neurodiversity going on so we're not easily put in a space so it's hard for me to summarize myself, but I would say what's useful for people to know for the purposes of this conversation is probably that I'll just tell you my roles. So I am an author and a public speaker and a visual thinker and a facilitator, really a sort of deep dive facilitator and a Zen student and also what I call a deep self designer and a book coach. <laughs> So as you can see, my friend Dave Mastronardi, he actually finally gave me language for this the other day. He goes, you're just a creative with a capital C. And I was like, cool, Dave. Thank you. Because that kind of helps, you know, it's like I just am interested in a lot. I don't like the word generalist. Right. Because it, it implies like jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. Right. But I, I love this idea of multipotentialite. I recently heard the word nexialist, which is that like a person at the nexus of lots of things? Doesn't quite roll off the tongue either. Right. But, but yeah, um, it comes from a sci fi book. And I, I'll put a link in the show notes so that we don't have to go into it in too much depth here. But I think it's a similar idea that you mm -hmm. are you know, driven by several different interests. Mm hmm. And, I love uh, science fiction for that. They always give us language that we need, you know? <laughs> I know. I feel like I want to explore several of the, of the many. What's the plural of nexus? Is it nexuses or nexus? <laughs> <laughs> several of the, of the different identities that you surface yeah. there the, or potentialities maybe. Yeah, uh, sure. You spoke of, well, let's tackle two of them that I'm especially curious about. You mentioned that you're a Zen student and a deep self-designer. I don't know if you want to take those independently <laughs> or if they somehow connect. They do connect, actually. And it's cool that you alighted on those two because they're the, I think, honestly, the most important ones that I do. 
and they have the most they have the most liberating capacity of all the things that I do. And they do have intersections, absolutely. So Zen is not something you can summarize really at all. It's such a deep and ancient lineage and a very enormous body of practice. But what I find useful and what actually, it was sort of the groundwork for my pursuit of designing another method And what it did for me was help me understand that the mind is a machine and it has like projections onto reality all the time. And it has narratives and stories that it constantly creates and recreates and lives into. And they can be very confining, these perceptions of reality. And so when you run into some ideas about reality that are actually created by you based on your history and your experience, if they cause friction for you, then there's a sort of place where you can redesign that intersection with reality to create a better reality for yourself. And I know that's like a lot to just unload (laughs) in conversation, but Zen made just sitting, which is, I'm in the, what's called the Soto Zen lineage. So literally you sit in meditation for out. I mean, I probably sat for 10,000 hours easily and not easily, but difficultly. Uh, but we call it just getting on the cushion, right? So like you just take it there and then you kind of watch what your mind is up to. And through that process, I learned how I trick myself, how I can have distortions in my belief systems. I think Steve Jobs used to call it a reality distortion field. I think he was also a Zen practitioner, but that laid the groundwork for me to understand, oh, I have a lot of agency and choice once I understand how my system works. And you know, like you're a systems thinker and a design thinker. So of course I was interested in that. And then I just went from that place and started to practice with different methods to support other people. I'm reminded of our mutual friend, Dave Gray's book, Liminal Thinking. Oh yeah. It's so funny you've said that because I I have it, of course. I always will buy whatever Dave makes, but I haven't read it because I have always way too many books but I understand kind of the vibe. And a lot of people, when I talk about this, they bring up his book. And I'm like, I should read that. (laughs) When I first read that, I remember asking Dave about it because I got the sense that there was a lot of Buddhism. Yeah, I don't know that Dave knows that he has a Buddhist aspect. I don't think he's a Buddhist practitioner, but I have found there's multiple people that actually arrive at some of these deep wisdom. Because it's not... It's not, it's in reality. So the Buddha was just describing reality. So anyone can find their own path to that awareness. And so, yeah, it's funny to me when I work with people and I go, oh my God, that's like a a very ancient principle that you stumbled upon, (laughs) you know? So I think Dave must've done that too, because he doesn't like go to a Zendo, I'm pretty sure. The path, it seems to me, and here I'm reflecting back to you what perhaps I layered through my own experience onto what you're saying, mm-hmm. which is that we experience reality at various different levels. Mm-hmm. And if you step back far enough, mm-hmm. you're able to contemplate the fact that much of what we experience is in some ways emerging from within us or at least the way that we're experiencing it is emerging from within us. Well said, beautifully said, yeah. I want to bring it back to this idea of deep Mm self-design. What I'm 
projecting onto this or where, where I think the, the, the two circles in the Venn diagram might overlap <laughs> is that if you understand this, this fact that much of what we are experiencing is emerging from within us, Mm-hmm. and you are someone who sees the world through the eyes of design, then perhaps you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You can do a lot about it. So what would you be able to do about it? It's so funny we're talking about this because last night I was having this conversation with my husband about workability. So everything, well, I won't do totalizing statements. I'll try to avoid them, but almost everything in your internal system is workable, meaning that it all has plasticity and, and adaptation capacity or a significant amount of it. So, and this is gonna sound very hyperbolic, but the reason I have such confidence in the workability of the system is because I redesigned my own internal experience over the course of, it's been 15 years now, but The mind that I started with when I started investigating this practice and the mind I have now are entirely different planetary systems. And I have a complex trauma history, which is relevant because when you have a complex trauma history, you have a whole host of distorted ideas about reality, all of which are workable. And so for me, it's like actually hopeful message. It's like, oh my God, your backstory can be kind of fucked up, you know? (laughs) And you can completely, as long as to your point, it was really important thing that you said, Jorge, which was if you step back, so you have to get some separation and observe with compassion, your belief systems. And from that seat, it's like a gentle observation. Then you have space with which to work. Often the traumatized brain is terrified of making that separation. It can be for a variety of reasons. So that's why it's a practice and it's a patience game often, but you can literally redesign your experience of yourself and of the world and of other people and of what's possible. And the energy that you liberate in that process is insane. It's absolutely insane how much energy you get when you untether yourself from a, a lot of distorted ideas about yourself and the world. And that's why I thought like, well, it's a design thinking challenge. You know? <laughs> like, it's basically like internal system mapping and then giving people methodologies to support the spaces that they want to loosen up or soften, you know? And I'm very fortunate to have encountered great teachers, r- really extraordinary teachers. And I'm fortunate to have had the time and the passion to do a deep dive, you know? But it's like that hero's journey where you go in, you know? And you come out and you're like, well, I have something I could share. So I'm still sorting out how to teach it, how to format it, how to design the methodology, because it's not a small thing to try to do, but it's worth it. It's completely worth it to try. It sounds empowering. Mm -hmm. It's extremely empowering. It sounds like a, a practice that restores perhaps a sense of agency where you're Mm -hmm. not buffeted by the contingencies of whatever happens in everyday life as much. And it's so important. That message is so important because there's places you go that are scary and there's fires you have to walk through. And 
you have to know that on the other side, not only will you be more free, but you'll be stronger, but you can't know that going in. Like once you get like your sea legs and you start to understand, oh my God, this is like Jedi training, then you can feel more confident about the outcome. But the early stages for most people is it can be absolutely terrifying. 100% absolutely. I mean, that's why most people can't even sit in meditation, frankly, because a lot of people do not want to sit with the content of their own mind. It's not something that we're encouraged to do. And it's not something that we're taught to do. And we don't know why we would do it. So we spend a lot of time avoiding that very thing. Understandably. I mean, I understand that instinct completely. It's, it's terrifying. But it's so freaking worth it. It's so worth it. There's no question about it. No question. And it improves your life, you know, improves your relationships with yourself and other people. And really your relationships are the most valuable thing you have in your health and maybe time, you know? So it's, it's a significant process, but it's not necessarily for everyone. And probably you experienced this with your students. There's what I call a state of readiness, which means that they're willing to do the work they're willing to be honest with themselves and others, and they're willing to address and hold space for really difficult content. And if I work with a person and it's very clear that they're not actually at that place, then they need to come back. They need to go and come back, you know, because it's a thing. And then in Zen, the analogy is when you go to the Zendo and you knock on the door three times and a monk opens the door and they say, go away, you know, and they shut the door. And then you sleep out in the cold or whatever. <laughs> and then you come again, you knock, and then the monk opens, says, go away. So it's a, it's a way of saying, like, if you're not ready, don't bother. Don't come, you know. And that process is a personal individual journeys, and you can't rush that for people. You mentioned in your own journey, having suffered complex trauma. Mm -hmm. And without getting into it, I'm just thinking that many of us many folks listening mm -hmm. have, especially over the last year and a half, yeah. gone through some pretty traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. And with the caveat that you just laid out that not everybody might be ready mm -hmm. to undertake such a practice, but assuming that someone would be interested in mm -hmm. at least trying to envision the path Mm -hmm. where would they start? So kind of like the chapter I was telling you, I sent to Kate, there's writing exercises and there's visual thinking exercises. And often I will just say, you know, you're in a creation when your energy has become contracted, combative, tight, when you feel conflict internally. So your body gives you all these signals that all is not well. And it can be a very subtle signal. Like, so say you're in a restaurant and a person walks in and your stomach clenches, right? So that's like an indication. So you start with noticing, just pay attention to what is happening inside of your system because you have to understand that you are the reactor and the stimulus is out there, but you are the reactor. And so noticing is a huge part of the practice just to start there. So it's kind of like when I used to teach visual thinking and I do occasionally sometimes still, but the visual thinking alphabet, you know, that Dave created, Dave Gray, it's like the basics. It's like, just start with just observing where these forms are and like draw them on paper. So it's like, really, you've got to start at that place. 
And notice if you judge it, you know, because a lot of people will be like, oh, I should be more brave. Why did I get nervous when the boss came in or whatever? Like, we'll very instantly have a reaction to our reaction. So just noticing that. So that's a start, right? And then once you have a relationship with your experience, so you're like, man, every time my mom comes over, I want to argue. Like right away, I just want to argue with her, you know? So you're like, okay. And so you notice that. So you start to, you begin to take responsibility for what you're bringing, right? And that's why it's empowering. It's like so fascinating how accountability is like not sexy, but I'm like, that's like the greatest thing you can do because you're in charge of your life. Like you're driving your bus, you know? So then there's exercises that I give people that are really simple. Like just notice that a part of you came online and wanted to argue with your mom. And then it's like really like a design inquiry. It's like an investigation of like, imagine that that's a persona. So say that's a design persona. And I've taught it in this way in some keynotes and stuff. So I kind of depersonalize it and I say, just treat that like a persona or an avatar. And just like you would if you were anthropologically studying a user experience, but do it for your own self. So like start to understand that persona and just give it some quality. I mean, it will name itself. Like that's what's so fascinating is that these personas, these internal personas, they give you information. They actually let you know because they're part of your brain. So like, <laughs> it's just about accessing that information that's in the brain. And I'm saying it trivially, like it's just that, but it's, it's all there. And so you just get curious. You just get curious and start finding out. And so over time, well, I like to teach people to create like a constellation, like a map of their internal system with all of these different personas so that they can relate to them differently. And when they do that, that's when it starts getting good. You know? All of a sudden you start, understanding the territory, I would imagine, right? yeah. when I'm map making. I wanted to clarify, you mentioned Kate, and you were talking about our mutual friend, Kate Rudder, who we were talking about before starting uh, the recording. And you alluded to a chapter, was that a chapter of a book that you're working on or? Yeah, this book. <laughs> so I, like I mentioned earlier, I'm a book coach and I love, I mean, I'm obsessed with books. It could be wrong, but if I had nothing but time and money, I think books is all I would do just unpacking them, looking at publishing, coaching writers, writing. That's all I would do. So, you know, I published twice and I, we pitched this book, actually. It is the Deep Self Design book. And the title was called The Only Way Out Is In, like one of the original titles, The Only Way Out Is In. And then the, I can't remember the subtitle. I have like 4,000 subtitles. <laughs> but so we pitched it. So it like, it was actually in proposal form. So when you want to pitch to a traditional publisher, you got to get your book in a proposal that is essentially describes the product for them. It's unfortunate, but for them, it's product. And for you too, really. So that it was like 90 pages of just glory, you know, and it took me years. And so Anyway, the way it ended up, I can tell that story. But at one point in the process, I said, Kate, can I send you like chapter one? And you just see if it lands for you. Like, what, give me a reader reaction. And apparently it turned some keys like pretty quickly for her because she wrote me. She was like, she drew, had, had drawn a picture of one of her personas. And I didn't even ask her to do that. And it was called the aviator. And so like she learned about this part of her that like flies around and sort of conducts the situation and looks from a high level and is very um, functional, you know, high functioning part persona. She just got it, you know, but she's really smart. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, cause you got to write to like an eighth grader, right? Like that's the level of communication that you want in books, which is why Brene Brown's tone is so beloved. 
So she just solicited that chapter again. And I'm willing to share it with anyone. I mean, you know, like people need to know how to do it. And so the book was pitched to publishers and there were 17 of them. And then like 12 of them wrote back, which is pretty good. And they all said it with the methodology was too complex for a, a typical reader. And I want, I lost my mind because I had already simplified it like so very much. <laughs> oh God. That day I was like standing in some, my neighbor's yard and I was just like, no, nah! you know, <laughs> because it's hard to track to the marketplace and to still deliver something really of high value. My God, it is exhausting. So I have put it down for now. And I started working on another book about confidence. Cause I was like, I can't, I can't revisit this thing. I'm going to freak out. <laughs> yeah. But it'll, it'll emerge at some point. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to read the deep self-design book at some point. Yeah, I'm wondering about something that you said, and again, trying to be kind of practical for the folks listening in Yeah, and wondering about where we start. I would imagine that doing this sort of internal map that you're describing here mm -hmm. is not something that we can do effectively amidst the hustle and bustle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you spoke earlier about making space. Mm-hmm. And I just got back from a weekend of camping with my family and we went pretty far out into the woods Nice. and I was, yeah, it, it was nice, but I was still surrounded by devices and I, oh. got, and I got into a little bit of a Twitter was... kerfuffle, oh, <laughs> yes, no. yes, right? And I'm bringing up the story to say, mm -hmm. it's so hard for us these days to find this yeah. space, to be yeah. with ourselves and to be introspective. And you even if we are it. aware... What's that? You have to take it. You have to take that space. Well, how do we do it? Do you have, do you have any advice for folks wanting to take this space? Well, yeah. When you do a Zen, a uh, 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 Sashin, you, you can't have books or paper or phones. And so you got to do like seven days of like 10 hours of meditation. So, so I, that is sacred time. No question about it. But for like a normal person who's not, that's not going to be on their calendar, First, you have to understand that you probably have an addiction, <laughs> right? So like if you can't remove yourself from an object for a, any chunk of time, that is actually an addictive relationship. So that's serious shit if you ask me. And I don't think it's a popular opinion. And I think that it's also true. So for me, just labeling it as an addictive relationship is step one. And then you don't even want to go into like, it's an, it could be an abusive relationship. Like we don't even have to talk about that, but that's in there too. So you have to understand that and you have to just understand wh why, what is in it for you to separate yourself from it and give yourself like a, a path. So can I separate from my phone for four hours? Like, you know, if you don't want to go cold turkey, just try it for four hours and notice what happens in your system when you do that. And that's actually part of the practice for deep self-design anyway. So you can be like, wow, I start having FOMO or I start thinking that someone's going to be mad at me because I didn't respond to them. So you get all kinds of information from just that short separation. Um, and there's a lot of data around you, like it, it literally keys up your nervous system being in a relationship with um, a digital object all the time. 
it keys up your nervous system. And so actually to regulate your nervous system again, which is what camping is kind of for, it kind of camping when it's like safe and beautiful, the point of it is to actually get you into a different state, to get your regulatory system in a different state so that you can enjoy your life and be present with your family and look at the sky and realize that you're part of, you are the sky. There's no difference between you and the sky. You just project that there is. And like, you know what I mean? Like, so you have to understand that that space is essential for your humanity and, and make it a priority. And, um, and you can tell people, I mean, there's ways to approach it that are gentle on other people. So you can let people know I'm going to be, I'm going to go dark for 72 hours. You should know that, you know, or I'm going to go dark and then I'm going to have one hour where I look at stuff, you know, like you have to design it for your life and what's actually available for you. Sometimes people have sick parents at home or sick kids or whatever, but, um, but you have to start to understand that the benefit of it. Cause I think most people think it's just some, like a, something they would lose. Like they wouldn't get it's something taken away from them. And I'm like, no, it's something you're giving yourself that is priceless and you get amazing ideas. Like your productivity is, goes up. So I call it going slow to go fast. Actually, I read this interesting Nietzsche quote, which I'm, I don't read Nietzsche a lot or anything, but like he said, like good ideas are, are found when you're walking, you know, meaning, and Steve Jobs was, and I also I'm not obsessed with Steve Jobs, but like he did a lot of walking meetings. So if, if you are a productivity junkie, going slow helps you go fast and you know, and it actually frees up a lot of um, like stuck tension in the body and stuck ideas that you can't get through. And it gives you solutions and ahas and insights. So there's huge rewards in it anyway, if you need it to be aligned with productivity. But it's like, dude, we're going to die one day, Jorge, like all of us. And the last thing I want to do is be like, I spent my whole life on my iPhone. That is like the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> No. And it's like, if you mess it up, try it again. Just like, don't give up, you know, go camping again and have a new policy with your family, like get consensus around it, make an agreement and just like find other ways to occupy your time. But it's a practice, you know, you, are you digging this? Are you smiling? Uh, I, I am. I, I'm smiling because I'm thinking, I'm looking at the, at the clock and thinking, oh man, we're running out of time, but I don't want to leave folks with, we're going to die someday. So <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, but I, I want to bring it back to, uh, well, you, you've mentioned two things. One is this idea of making space, mm-hmm. which, uh, as you're saying, in, in our uh, modern world often entails not just space, but also kind of like shielding ourselves from these uh, potentially addictive devices, right? And then the technologies that, uh, that they enable. Mm-hmm. And then there's this aspect of um, self-awareness through... Mm-hmm. You talked about map making and using the lens of design to think of ourselves as personas. Mm-hmm. It sounds like those two are essential to getting yeah. kind of a read. It's almost like the first part of the double diamond diagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there comes this moment where we have to do synthesis work in design and we have to like think through how we're going to move forward, what we're going to do about it. So is there like a step three here as well? After synthesis? No, after, after, like, after we've done the map and we have understood oh, ourselves. Right? Yes, yes, there's definitely a step three, which is the, what I would call the befriending step. So you have your constellation of parts of you, like how many personas are in there, and there's an average, but it's kind of infinite when you go in too far. But the next step is basically finding your most active personas. 
Because like, you know, when you wake up, you I have an active persona, which is like, oh, I'm going to be really productive. I'm going to be very uh, in touch with a lot of people, make sure that um, everyone is like well-fed, you know, so I have like a kitchen caretaker part, like I have all these personas. So you can find the most dominant ones, the most operative ones, and then and you start to learn about them and then but the ultimate uh, goal is to make friends with them all even the parts of yourself that you do not like because what happens when you allow and and support and befriend all the aspects of yourself is that all this internal tension that people experience like people wake up with anxiety you know people wake up with um uh self-criticism etc etc all of that energy uh stabilizes and is calm so that your experience relating to yourself is not fraught with tension anymore so you actually have to befriend them like you would an external child or a person that you care about who is outside you do that work internally and when you do you spend a lot less time kicking your own ass I mean people kick their own asses constantly you know and it's like um, starting to understand why is that and what's happening there and how do you um, appreciate that you're doing that, but also let it know that, that you don't have to do that in order to be smart or in order to be productive, etc. So that is like the biggest step is to befriend all of your constellation on your map. And then from there, it's like flying, you know, <laughs> it's like there's nobody in the way. There's nobody in the way. I mean, there's life, like there's, there's institutions of life that are um, designed to oppress people. Those things are still there, but the way that we relate to them is very different. And that's why it feels so liberating. Well, that seems like a really good place to wrap it up. I'm sure that folks listening in are going to want to learn more. Mm -hmm. Where can they go? Oh, they can go to deepselfdesign.com. Um, and you're also helping me remember that I need to create these little tools that I always create tools and methodologies. So, but deepselfdesign.com is definitely the home page. And also sunnybrown.com has a lot of content on it. They can follow me all over the social medias too. <laughs> like, Just not while you're camping. Yeah, no way. You'll never see me. on that. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's me and mother earth when that's going on for sure. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, honey, for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to see you. Yeah, same here. And thank you for listening. As always, you can find notes and a transcript for this episode at theinformed.life. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes come out, please subscribe to my newsletter at theinformed.life slash newsletter. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate or review it in Apple's podcast directory. This helps other folks find it. Thanks, 